0: Hi, everyone. This is Pastor Brett from First Baptist Church here in Cherryvale, Kansas, and I want to welcome you to our Cherryvale First Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. Our prayer is that the Lord will speak to you through his word for his people. If you're looking for a church home, we encourage you to join us for our celebration service every Sunday morning at 1045. It's a great time of praising our Lord and hearing from him. We are just a group of passionate followers of Jesus Christ with a desire to worship him and take his message of hope to the heartland. If you want to find out more information about our church, you can look at our website, www.fbcherryvale.org. My sermon will begin in just a moment, and thanks again for listening. I invite you to find your Bibles and turn this morning to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15. As you're turning there, this morning we're going to begin a new series. This series is going to run through Easter morning. It's a series called, Did the Cross Make a Difference? And through this series, we're going to look back at three cases to answer that question. Then we're going to wrap it up in the fourth week and hopefully prove that once and for all, that yes, the cross did make a difference. All the difference in the world for us. Our first case this morning is that of the Roman centurion. He was assigned to be at the side of Jesus when he went through the crucifixion process. Before we look at his story, first let's make sure that we understand what is a Roman centurion. By Roman custom, the centurion standing next to the cross, he would have been one of those who had led a detail of soldiers, one performing the crucifixion. Centurions, they were promoted from the ranks, and each one they commanded 100 men, hence the title centurion. They would have been battle-hardened veterans, capable of leading men into combat. Such men, they didn't easily go soft at the sight of suffering around them. But as we'll see, we'll see this, by the way, that they callously joked and gambled their way through Jesus' murder. But there was something about how Jesus died that impressed this centurion. He wouldn't have known about the curtain tearing in the temple, nor does Mark mention the earthquake to which Matthew refers. And what we're going to see this morning is the soldier saw something in Jesus himself, his refusal to take the painkillers, his quick and his purposeful death that caused him to realize that he had been in the presence of a true hero. Let's read our text for this morning. Please stand in honor of reading God's word. We're going to begin in Mark chapter 15, but we're going to be referencing different passages in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke to kind of help support what we're teaching. But we're going to read this morning, Mark chapter 15. I'll be reading verses 21 through 39. And they compelled a pastor by Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was a darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthini, which means my God, my God, you have forsaken me. And some of the bystanders hearing it, behold, he is calling Elijah. And some ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, as we look at this text, this story about this crucifixion of Jesus and the soldiers that took part in it, Lord, I pray that we can see what their eyes might have seen and what they might have experienced to help us understand, did that cross, did it make a difference to those Roman soldiers, to that Roman centurion who was in charge that day? And if it did, what does it mean for us here this morning? God, open our ears and open our hearts to all that it is you want us to learn this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. By the time of Christ's crucifixion, the Romans had already crucified about 30,000 men in Palestine alone. Execution assignments, they would have been a normal duty for the Roman soldiers of the day. They would have taken care of political prisoners, those that were guilty of insurrection. And they would have taken care of the hardened criminals, those that had run out of appeals on their case. The soldiers, they'd mastered the use of whips to bring the criminals to what they called near death before nailing them to the cross. However, never had a Roman soldier, never had they encountered the death of anyone like Jesus. I sincerely doubt that any of those soldiers, they had much knowledge of Jesus' life, of his life before he got in there. They more than likely met him for the very first time when he was standing there outside Pilate's judgment hall. As a result, most of what they would know about Christ, it would come, it would revolve around that one day, that day of Christ's crucifixion, Jesus' actions, his words, his spirit. They were so different, different from anyone else the soldiers had ever seen die on a cross, that by the time Christ died, some, if not all of them, placed their faith in Jesus as their living Lord. The commanding officer, the centurion, the one that was in charge over the scene, he's never named in Scripture. Now, if you go back and you read over traditional stories handed down over the years, some say that that Roman officer's name was a guy named Longinus. But the Bible offers us only the rank of this man. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke's Gospels account, the officer simply is called the centurion. A centurion is often entrusted with a difficult assignment. And the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, well, it would have been the most volatile assignments yet. The surrounding mob, they were close to a riot on this day. It was to the point where they figured it was unlikely that this prisoner would even make it to Golgotha. Now, to make matters worse, the criminal in the soldier's charge, he fell beneath the weight of the cross. They had to get another man to carry it for him. The crowds that lined the streets, they were shouting insults at him, calling for the criminal's death. More than likely, the centurions had never before, they had never seen such hatred, the utter lack of compassion that they were seeing directed at this man. Matthew's Gospel informs us that after seeing several things happen, the centurion and his soldiers, they had come to the conviction that Jesus Christ was actually the Son of God. They even risked their own lives, their own reputations to declare that truth. When we think back about it now, these Roman soldiers, they actually became the first evangelists of the crucified Christ when they declared not only his innocence and his righteousness, but they declared his deity at the foot of the cross. This would become yet another early indication that the gospel of the Messiah was going to include both the Jew and the Gentile. What were these things that the soldiers, what was it they saw and they heard as they carried out just one more crucifixion in their job, one more criminal being crucified, what things would bring them to faith in Jesus Christ? This morning, what we're going to do is we're going to be looking at the events, those events that led to the conversion of that Roman centurion. We're going to look at how Jesus going and Jesus dying on the cross, how it made all the difference to that Roman centurion. We're going to walk through several different events, events pulled from the various gospel accounts, events that would have struck the centurion and his soldiers as unique. The first event we have is the fact that Pilate, he declares Jesus as innocent. In Luke's gospel, in an unprecedented move, Pilate says to the mob, look at it in Luke 23, 22, What evil has he done? I have found no guilt deserving death. As Pilate hands over Jesus to the centurion, instead of hearing the crimes that were committed against him, that they usually do, they read down through the list of crimes against the state. Crimes that would justify the death sentence that they were trying to get for Jesus. He and his soldiers watch, as in Matthew 27, 24, it says... He took water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. So Pilate, he kind of washed his hands in a ceremonial manner. And without a doubt, this got the centurion's attention. He was a soldier that had given his life to protect and to uphold the law of the land. And his leader now, he just announced that this criminal that was before them, he had never broken a law of the land. Now, the second event that caught those soldiers' attentions under number two is this. It's the unusual exchange. It was an exchange between Christ and a group of women. As they made their way through the streets of Jerusalem on their way to Golgotha, the centurion and his soldiers, they would hear Christ make an unusual statement. It was to the daughters of Jerusalem. Luke in chapter 23 records these women. They're from the city and they were following Jesus as he was walking through the city on that day. And they were weeping because of his imminent death. Now understand, they weren't weeping as much because of their faith in him as because it was a Jewish man being executed in this manner by the Romans. Instead of feeding off of their kindness and sympathy, the centurion hears Christ say to them in Luke twenty-three twenty-eight, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. In other words, Jesus is saying here, don't be concerned about me. Be concerned more about your family. Even in his hour, in his last hours here, the compassion of our Lord causes him to stop and tell these women that they and their nation are in grave danger. Jesus, beaten beyond recognition at this point, he's on his way to die. Yet what does he do? He shows compassion for other people who he says are also going to die. This would certainly have seemed odd to the soldiers who were well warned by the crying of the condemned. They're crying for mercy as they're being led to Golgotha. But had they ever seen a condemned man care about anybody else on his way to an excruciating death? See, friends, that's the point. These soldiers, they would be struck repeatedly by the evidence over and over again that Christ didn't seem to care about himself at all. He was always more concerned about the others. The third event that mystified these soldiers is Christ's refusal to drink. It was Christ's refusal to drink that wine mixed with the myrrh. History records the custom that the daughters of Jerusalem, what they would do is out of compassion for that condemned person, they would provide them with this mix of myrrh and wine. It was kind of a narcotic drink for them, intended to ease the pain of the crucified victim. Mark's gospel informs us that when Christ, when he reached the skull, look at it, Mark 15, 23, they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Why? Why did he not take the drink? It's because this, Christ, he had work to do on the cross. He had things to say, and he wouldn't want to do that if he was in a drunken stupor. He couldn't have done it, and people would not have believed him. He would face death without the anesthetic, so that every word that He said from the cross, it could be trusted, so that every final act, it could be recorded and freighted with divine meaning in our lives. Christ had prophecies to fulfill, and He had souls to save. It would soon become obvious to these soldiers that He wanted to save their souls as well. This would begin to dawn on these men as they heard this next event that came down. The fourth event was this, Christ offered forgiveness. Christ offered those Roman soldiers, those ones that were beaten his hands and feet into the cross, he offered them forgiveness as they nailed him to the cross. Luke continues on in chapter 23, verse 33a. says, And when they came to the place that is called the skull, this place is Calvaria in Latin, it's Crania in Aramaic, it's Golgotha in the Greek. All three of these words mean the same thing. It means the skull. This was the nickname of that hill that they had out there that was this place of execution where they took all their prisoners. Now notice in Luke twenty three thirty three it says that when they came to that place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. But Jesus was saying in Luke twenty three thirty four Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And it is said in the next part of that verse 34, and they cast lots to divide up his garments. To understand the context here points clearly to an often overlooked fact here that Christ, he was not offering forgiveness here to the religious leaders who had come to mock him. They knew what they were doing. They knew why they were there, and and they knew who Jesus was, but yet they were mocking him. They certainly could have been forgiven, but that wasn't the intended target for Christ's forgiveness. Jesus here, he was praying for those soldiers. The Sanhedrin, they knew what they were doing, but these soldiers, they did not. All they were doing was simply, they were on duty on that fateful day, and so what were they doing? They were following the orders that they were given. Can you imagine this scene? The Savior's body laying there twisting in pain as each blow in that hammer is struck, being jolted as they drop that cross into the ground, followed by further hammering as they put a nail through his feet. Yet all the while, he kept on praying over and over again, Father, forgive them, forgive them, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. I cannot imagine any criminal that was ever executed before that would be looking at them, looking at these soldiers that were doing this to them as they were nailing him to the cross and offered them any kind of prayer of forgiveness. But don't miss the fact that Jesus, he also kept praying to the Father. Even the Romans would have known enough to know that no Jew would ever call God his Father. The centurion had listened as Pilate declared this man innocent. He had heard Christ warn a group of women that he was not in danger with God. But they were the ones that were in danger with God. He watched Christ refuse to drink this narcotic drink that they offered him. Then he heard this man offer forgiveness to his soldiers for what they were doing. Now, I believe that centurion, now he was deeply wondering, Just who is this man? Who is he? Why is he doing What is he? What's going on here? The fifth event that would have struck the centurion and his soldiers unique is this, the pleading of the criminal. It was one of those criminals that was with him. He was pleading to be given entrance into Christ's kingdom. Luke's gospel account, it records the dramatic conversion of one of the criminals that were hanging next to Jesus. His eyes had been opened by the grace of God to the truth of Jesus Christ. In Luke 23, 42, he says this, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. There is no doubt that this centurion had already mulled over the meaning of those words that were on the placard that hung up behind Jesus' head as he was put on that cross that declared Jesus' only crime, which was what? According to Mark 23, 37, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Now the soldiers, they hear one of these condemned men that were hanging on the cross beside him. They hear him cry out to Jesus, cry out in faith, asking him, allow me to come into your kingdom when you pass away. Surely this man on that center cross between these two criminals, surely he'd wake up and he'd tell these criminals, Hey, guys, you've been misled, okay? It's all a myth. Surely he would have said something like, Hey, buddy, I mean, look at me here. I'm hanging on a cross just like you guys. Do I look like someone who has a kingdom waiting for them? I mean, get over it. Give it up. But instead, the centurion and his soldiers, they were likely shocked to hear Jesus' reply. Luke 23, 43. Truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. In other words, what Jesus, what he was saying here, he is saying, I am the king of the Jews. I am the expected Messiah. There is a kingdom belonging to me, and I give you entrance. That's what he was telling that criminal on the cross. After these words, nature now, it gets a grip. Through the grip of the Creator, it lends its voice to the scene in Calvary. And we'll look at our sixth event that made an impact. It was when darkness covered the land. Total darkness. It swept over Calvary and it covered it with darkness. Luke tells us about this in Luke twenty-three forty-four. It was now about the sixth hour. And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Now, in case you don't understand Jewish time, the sixth hour would have been about noon. When the sun hits its peak, and suddenly now, all of a sudden, it's like a light bulb. It gets turned off, and it gets dark. Now, the word translated land is the Greek word gi, which can refer to a region or to the entire world. Sources outside of the Bible indicate that this darkness was actually a global darkness. One of the sources is this: the letter from Pilate. He had wrote to the Roman emperor Tiberius in which he referred to the darkness. The darkness to which he knew that Tiberius had also experienced. Even though Tiberius was not in the land of Israel at the time. Pilate even mentioned in his letter that the darkness lasted from 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Friends, there's no doubt that the soldiers, they quickly started a fire that day. They wanted to be able to keep watch, so they needed some light to keep watch and to keep their torches lit. And this supernatural darkness, it blotted the sky. It blotted it for three hours. From this point forward, I believe the tone of everything on that day changes. The rabbis had taught for centuries that the darkening of the sun, it was actually a judgment of God. On that hill called Mount Calvary, there's no more mocking. There's no more jeering going on. Everyone senses that God's hand is it's somehow involved in this particular scenario. Undoubtedly, the religious leaders, they kind of step back and they kind of slip away before anybody can notice. In fact, Luke's gospel tells us that after Jesus dies, it says the crowd was still in the scene. And they returned to Jerusalem weeping and in deep contrition. We see this in Luke 23, 48. It says, and all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their chests. Some commentators suggest, and I would agree, that the people that were here this day, the people that witnessed this on Golgotha on that day, that crowd there, that they were probably among those that responded to Peter's message on that day of Pentecost. They were part of that 3,000 converts on that day. And on that day, they became members of Christ's newly created church. But on Golgotha, they're about to become witnesses to the Savior, becoming the sin-bearer for all. There were three days of darkness in Egypt before the first Passover. There were three hours of darkness before the last Passover. This darkness here is the judgment of God, who He abandons His Son as He bears the wrath of the Father, representing the wrath of the triune God against all of the sins of all of the world. Darkness falls over all the land. The world that rejects Jesus Christ, the light of the world, is now a world that lives in darkness. The person who rejects Jesus Christ, that person is heading toward an eternity in hell. As Jesus warned us of this, look at what he said in Matthew 8, 12, While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus calls it a place of darkness where there will be weeping forever. This is in contrast to heaven where we will have no more tears, no more sorrow. Look at Revelation 21.4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. During those three hours of darkness, Jesus makes a few more statements. The seventh event is this that caught their attention. It was Christ's cry of abandonment. It's when Christ, it's when he cried out. It wasn't a cry of agony, it was a cry of abandonment. Suddenly out of the darkness Jesus cries, look what it says, Matthew twenty seven, forty six. In about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama, sabachthini. that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The centurion would have noticed that Jesus isn't referring here to God as his father. For the first time in Scripture here, Jesus doesn't address God as his Father. There's no intimate communion at this point between Jesus, who took upon himself our sins, as Jesus, who knew no sin, he becomes sin on our behalf, as Jesus, as he becomes a curse for us, as Jesus is delivered up because of our sins, as Jesus, as he bears our sin in his body on that cross. Yes, Jesus bears the wrath of God. But not only bearing our sin, but by becoming sin. The sin of all mankind becoming sin on our behalf. In order that those who believe in him. The whole reason he did this is so that those who believe in him might be saved from the penalty of their sins and have eternal life. The centurion, they hear Jesus cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We might think, okay, hold on a minute, hold on, wait, wait, just a minute. Didn't Jesus know? I mean, in the agony of all of his suffering and all that's going on, had he forgotten the plan that was laid out, that plan of salvation that was crafted way back before the beginning of the world? Friends, Jesus wasn't saying these words because he had forgotten what was written about the salvation in the beginning and the end. Jesus wasn't saying these words for that purpose. He was making a statement. He was making it to clearly connect his life and his dying to the prophecies that were in Scripture. Christ happens to be quoting the fulfilling Psalm 22, which is the prophetic psalm in which David expresses his own personal agony for the sense of separation that he had from God. At the same time, David delivers up prophecies. Prophecies that are more specific than he could have ever imagined. Prophecies about what will take place at the crucifixion of the Messiah at the place called the skull. Let's look at what David writes in Psalm twenty-two seven. He said, All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Psalm 22.14 I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. Psalm 22.15 my strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Psalm 22:16. My enemies surround me like a pack of dogs. An evil gang closes in on me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Psalm 22:18. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And just like Jesus on the cross, this psalm here begins in Psalm 22, 1 with these words. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? In a similar manner, Jesus was expressing the agony of separation from his Father, but he's expressing it in a way that connects it with the specifics of death by crucifixion with these words of Scripture. There's one more piece of evidence that announced Jesus' deity. It's this. The eighth event was that Christ's shout of completion. When the darkness, when it was about to lift, John's gospel records in John 19.30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The statement is one word in the Greek language. It's tetelestai, which means paid in full. The gospel is being delivered in one word, tetelestai. Jesus didn't cry out, I am finished. What did he cry out? It is finished. The perfect tense of this verb that he shouted out, it means that it is finished and it will always be finished. What a strange thing for a dying man to be crying out on the cross. However, this isn't or shouldn't seem strange for those Christians. This is the cry of the believer's deliverance, the shout for their forgiveness, the declaration for their eternal justification in Christ. This isn't the end of the story. The story is now just merely picking up speed. Luke then includes the final words of Jesus when he says this in Luke 23, 46, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The centurion now hears Jesus reverting back to calling God his father. He's now his father again. Why did Jesus do this? Because it was finished. In the darkness, on that cross, Jesus had paid the eternal sacrifice. It was the payment for our sins and now he was no longer abandoned by his father, Christ. He offers up his spirits, offers it up to the care of the father. The ninth and final event that struck them as unique was this. It would have been the earthquake. The centurion would literally feel the earthquake as Christ bows his head in death and gives up his spirit. Matthew records the earth began to shudder and shake, shake so violently that rocks split apart. Look at it, Matthew 27:51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. Throughout the course of Jewish history an earthquake was the sign of the presence of God. This was true, true even for the Gentile Roman soldier, the soldier who had seen enough. It's no wonder that the centurion stood at that cross in wonder and said in Matthew 27:54, "Truly this was the son of God." Friends, it all makes sense, right? The compassion, the dignity, The promise of a kingdom, the communication with God his Father, the darkness, the earthquake upon the land. Truly, this was the Son of God. If you research this statement, you'd find some notations in certain translations. Notations which I deeply resent. They want to translate this as the Roman centurion might have said he was a son of God or a son of a God. Simply because there was no definite article that was in this passage. Friends, look. Throughout all of the New Testament, the title, Son of God, appears with or without the article. And there's never a grammatical or contextual argument given for that. There's no questions ever raised. When the angel came to Mary, let's look at that, with the announcement of her divinely conceived child. She was told with the same Greek construction, Luke one thirty-five. Therefore, the child will be born, will be called, Holy, the Son of God. We see the same Greek construction that was used in the Jews' announcement to Pilate in John nineteen seven, Because he, and that was being Jesus there, because he has made himself the son of God. Christ never claimed to be a son of any God, but the only son of the only true and living God. When the disciples saw Jesus walking toward them on the water, they saw him. And with this same grammatical context in Matthew fourteen thirty-three, they said, truly you are the son of God. Why would there be any attempt to water it down now or even question this fact that Jesus is the son of God? Because this happens to be the gospel. It's the gospel right there. Jesus told Nicodemus in those famous words, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. It was a Roman soldier who was the first Gentile convert in the world after that death of Jesus, a conversion that happened at Calvary, at the foot of the fallen Savior. So if we'd ask, did the cross, did it make a difference to that Roman centurion? I believe that we can clearly see today the cross did make a difference to that Roman centurion. Because when we look at Luke's account of this experience, that centurion, he was not being quiet about his conversion. It says in Luke 23, 47, Now when the centurion saw all that had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. The text says what? He praised God. Did you catch that? The very first, the very first hallelujahs of the cross. They came first from the lips of the redeemed centurion. Imagine that. He came to faith standing right there beneath the dead Savior's cross. He believed that this dead man was indeed the king with a coming kingdom, that he was the son of God. We place our faith in him because of what? Because he rose again. And surely he had to in order to validate his claim. We place our faith in him because today he lives. We sing he lives, he lives. But that Roman centurion, he placed his faith in him even though he had just died. What a grand faith that is, friends. This soldier, that was the, he was the first one that began singing the praises of God for the sacrifice and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And rightly so, the hallelujahs can begin at Calvary because out Calvary, as Jesus says, the deal was done. Forgiveness was finalized. Sacrifice was offered up. Christ's own lips declared it. It is and it will always be finished. This is why Christians to this day, why they can look at the cross and do the unthinkable, the unimaginable, they can praise God and they can sing. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best For a world of lost sinners was slain. Or they can sing. When I survey the wondrous cross. On which the prince of glory died. My richest gain I count. But loss and poor contempt. On all my pride, we stand forgiven at the cross. Who started this tradition of praising Jesus Christ at Calvary? Soldiers did. The ones who had seen a lot of men die on crosses. A centurion did, who thought that he had seen everything in his life until... He saw the King and believed the Savior who was and is and always will be the Son of the living God. Let me just close with this. None of us here, no one here was physically present at Jesus' crucifixion. No one here had direct Experience from the events like this centurion did. However, through God's word and through his spirit, each and every one of us here today, we have been presented with an intimate and a personal experience that has been presented to us by God an experience of Christ crucified, like that centurion on that day nearly 2,000 years ago. Each of us today, we each face that same all important question How will you respond? How will you respond to your encounter with this crucified Christ? Will you simply ignore it? Will you forget it? Will you drown it away through further separation from and rebellion against God and His truth? Will you simply be repelled by the injustice and the sadness of this whole thing? Or will you allow His Spirit? Will you allow it to compel you to respond in a way, a way that is much more significant and meaningful and life-changing and even eternal? Will you simply shake your head, maybe shed a tear for the cross? Or will you embrace the salvation that Jesus, that he has brought to you, and therefore not only celebrate or marvel at it, but personally live and benefit from his resurrection? Friends, the decision is yours. The response, it must be real. What's it going to be for you? Make a decision to accept Christ if you haven't. Accept it. Accept his work on the cross. Make that decision today. Let's pray. I want to thank you for listening to the message today. I pray that this message somehow has touched you and created within you a passion for action for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you have any questions or you need to make any decisions or you just need to talk to someone, I encourage you to contact your local pastor. And if you don't have one, if you don't have a local church, you may contact me through the church office at 620 620- 336 We'd love to see you on Sunday mornings in church for our celebration service. It's a great time of fellowship and worship of our Lord and Savior. Come join us. We know you'll be blessed. And thanks again for listening to the Cherryvale First Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. And have a blessed day.